Welcome to the Daily Bible Podcast, a show intended to help you get more out of your everyday time in the Word. This is a ministry of Compass Bible Church in North Texas, and if you'd like to join along with our daily Bible reading program, you can do so by going to compassntx.org and clicking on the Daily Bible Reading tab. Thanks for joining in for today's episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. You made it! Again, here you are. Although we're going to record one of these maybe someday and Jesus is going to come back the night before. <laughs> You're not here. Yeah. Or if you are, um, go back and start listening to as many sermons as you can get your hands on, pick yes. up a Bible and get after it. Yes. Uh, yeah. So we're back and uh, we are still in Nehemiah in the Old Testament, still in Acts chapter two in the New Testament. That's right. Um, Nehemiah, we talked about it briefly last time, though it takes center stage this time, and that is the opposition to Nehemiah rebuilding this wall. And Pastor Rod, as you and I were talking about this ahead of time, you mentioned a couple things about Sanballat and Tobiah and and this other guy, uh, Gersh, Gershom? Gershom. Gershom. And just kind of a, a different perspective on these three guys. Will you share what you were saying uh, right before we got started here? Um, <laughs> About who they were and the fact that they were there and that, that Nehemiah. Oh, yes. Memory oh, thank jog. you. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that you may not, you may not read it so easily when you're putting your nose in the Bible is that these guys have been here. I mean, they, they, they've been there longer than Nehemiah. They've, they might've had, they had families there. They had deep ties into this area. Think about this. Judah is just now coming back. Israel's beginning to reoccupy the land, which means that for 70 years, they had not, except for the uh, poorest of the land. And of course, you have Samaritans who are moving in. You have long family lineages now that have deep ties to this area. So when you read about their, their opposition, you have to read a little between the lines and thinking these guys are fighting for their own nationalistic pride. Granted, it was wrong. God didn't promise them the land, so it's not right-minded, but you can understand at least a little bit of their heart behind it. And it's interesting. Notice in verse two, he he, they begin to uh, ratchet up their opposition here. In Sambalet, um, he's jeering at the Jews. He's angry with them. He's greatly enraged. So the the Hebrew there is just emphasizing the fact that this guy is seething angry. And in verse two, it says he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria. Mm. Now think about New Testament. Think about the Samaritan and Jew conflict. We see some of the the earlier vestiges of that here because the Samaritans were the people that stayed behind that ended up intermarrying. We've talked about intermarriage quite a bit recently on this podcast. Uh, They they were intermarrying with the foreign nations and producing this uh, mixed race, as it were, um, of half-breed Jews is is what the Jewish people came to think of them as because they had polluted themselves with these foreign nations. And so Sanballat is, is addressing the army of Samaria, these Samaritans that are there, that are a product of the exile, that are, are foreign together and they're going to go and they're going to try to put a stop to the rebuilding of the wall. Uh, the, the response then from Nehemiah is this prayer of, uh, of, of judgment on them beginning in verse four. It's a, a rather abrupt transition there. It's not super clear, but we can pick it up when we start to read and go, wait a minute. Okay. He's addressing God. This isn't sand ballot anymore. This is, this must be Nehemiah. And he prays for God to turn back their taunt on their own heads, to give them up, to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from before your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, I think a couple things you may be wondering, should I pray that prayer over my, my neighbor who I've got conflicts with today? <laughs> God, don't turn back his taunt on him and don't forgive his sin. 
what's going on here? I, I think we need to see here, and I think it bears itself out with the last statement that Nehemiah made. This is a righteous indignation. This is a righteous anger that Nehemiah has over not opposition to himself and his plans, but opposition to God and the plans that the Lord had to bring his people back to Jerusalem. What a helpful distinction. And so that's why he says there, he says, do not cover their guilt for they have provoked you, God, to anger in the presence of the builders. And so Nehemiah is concerned for the, the reputation of the Lord. Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, they all hear that the re- repairing of the walls was going forward because I love the simplicity in verse six. So we built the wall. Huh. They're not going to be deterred. They, they know what they're supposed to do. They just keep going. But again, they are very angry, it says in verse seven, and they, they plot and they, they want to come and fight against them now. And, and the, the people begin to fail. It says in verse 10, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. There's discouragement. And so there needs to be a rallying. And again, Nehemiah steps up and they begin to, uh, as, as Pastor Rod, as you put it earlier in our conversation, multitask here. And, and they begin to rebuild the wall with one hand and carry a weapon in the other hand because the opposition was so intense. They we're fearing for their lives as they're rebuilding the wall at this point. Yeah. And it's so cool to see the interplay between dependence and reliance on the Lord and a great deal of personal responsibility. In fact, verse nine really well summarizes it. We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So for them, it wasn't a matter of, uh, should we pray to God or should we take uh, active precaution? It was a both and. And for, for most of us, it's going to be the same as we go throughout our lives. Don't don't not pray. In fact, I heard somebody say it like this. Pray as if everything depends upon God and work as if everything depends upon you. Mm. And, and I think that is a helpful place to start when we're, whenever we're considering different options or, or, or opportunities available to us. But don't do either or. Do both and. It reminds me of, of a situation with Joab when he was out with his brother and the, the, the forces were gathered against him. And he prayed and he said, God, whatever you will to be done, I know is going to be done. So let whatever you will be done be happen. But then he looked at his brother and said, hey, we're going to split our forces. Yep. So we're going to have the best shot at, at, at defending ourselves and, and, and being victorious. So again, yeah, to your point, trust in God, but hey, we're going to do what we need to do here. And that's what the Israelites are doing as well. And that's, yeah, super encouraging for us. I love that. Uh, pray as though God is responsible for everything and and. and work as though we're responsible for everything. That's that's a, a super helpful uh, encouragement there. There's a, a an old phrase, the sword and the trowel that comes out of this, and that's the 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 title that Spurgeon gave his his weekly magazine where he would send out all of his sermons to people. And it's just the it's kind of a, a colloquial colloquial words. Colloquial. It's an idiom um, <laughs> that people use. Let's go with that. To talk about, hey, we need to be doing the, the work at hand and yet also aware that we're doing it in the midst of opposition in a hostile world, as we talked about even a little bit yesterday. Well, there's there's the external opposition from Sanballat and uh, and the, those forces, but then there's this problem in, internally, and that mm-hmm. is that Nehemiah realizes that the people of Israel are not treating one another the way that they should. They are oppressing the poor. They're, the, the rich were lending and lending at high interest rates, and they were extorting their brothers in Israel, and, and Nehemiah is is frustrated with it. Nehemiah is, is burdened by it. He's mourning over this. And so he confronts the people about this and doesn't just confront the people about this, but then also calls them to follow his lead and his example. And in verses 14 and following, we, we just see Nehemiah, it's titled there in your Bible, Nehemiah's generosity. 
and, and that's what it is, is, as he's the governor of this area there, and it says that he was the governor there uh, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes. So we're dealing with 445 to 433 BC, kind of that time frame that he's serving as the governor there. Um, and he's providing food for people and he's sacrificing from what he has. He's doing exactly the opposite of what he was confronting Israel to do. And he's calling them to follow his lead. And essentially what we're seeing here is Nehemiah is picturing Christ. Uh, Christ who was rich became poor for our sakes instead of going to be served. He's the one who is among them as one who serves. And so even though we're reading Nehemiah in 445 BC, what we really ought to be seeing is how he points to their ultimate savior, their ultimate builder, Jesus Christ, who would ultimately come to serve them in the way that the walls could never do. He serves them infinitely as their their savior and their Lord. Mm. Chapter six, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, they, they're persistent if nothing else, right? They've been Damn. rebuffed at their jeering. They've been rebuffed at trying to, to go to over the, the head of Nehemiah and back to the king. They've been rebuffed at, at physical opposition. So now they're going to try to go the other route and extend an olive branch. Or Let's be friends. It looks like that. We're concerned for you. Yeah. Hey, why don't you come over and uh, and hang out with us? And it says there, though, in the text in verse two, but they intended to do me harm. And Nehemiah is a wise individual and he sees through it and he's not going to go with it. And uh, so they, they sent four times in this way. And I answered them the same manner every single time. So have you ever invited somebody to dinner like four times? And they're like, no, no, no. You may want to check with them and, and make sure they don't think that you want to kill them. That's a good, that's a good piece of advice. there, Yeah. PJ. Yeah. Some application you didn't expect in the DB podcast. I did not today. expect that either. Sam Ballot sends again, these guys are just continuing to persist and continuing to try to discourage Nehemiah from uh, from the work that he has. Uh, verse 14, Nehemiah again is, is praying against these men. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did and also the prophetess because he hires a false prophet, prophetess, uh, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid because they're trying to discourage them now by, by fear and trying to get them to see that this is not God's will, that the, law, that the wall actually be finished. But we find finally in, in Nehemiah 6.15, the wall was finished. Wow. They persist. They kind complete it. A little bit, a little bit. I mean, just kind of states it matter of fact, right? And it's kind of the same way with the temple, right? Like the temple's finished, yeah. And there's not this trembling of the threshold and the spirit feeling that it, it just it's done. Wah, wah, wah. And in part, it's a reminder. And and the the Israelites didn't understand it necessarily at the time, though uh, Nehemiah does now. It's a reminder that that this is not the ultimate restoration that we're looking for. That's right. That this is this is a restoration that their return from exile, but this is not. The millennial kingdom. This is not the, the the promised return of the Davidic king that they're hoping for, praying for, searching for, looking for. That's yet to come. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think some of these things are anticlimactic. Yeah. And it, again, does point us to the fact that our hope is not in this life. Even when God does bless us and do good things for us, and, and it's wonderful, we should celebrate those things and honor those things. But when it comes to the end of the day, it's kind of like Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving and Christmas and all those holidays that are grouped together, there's always a sweet anticipation. It's like everyone gets excited. We start thinking about what foods we're going to eat and what presents we're going to buy. But I don't know about you, Pastor PJ, but at the end of the season, I'm always like, I always feel like, huh, well, that was good. But it yeah. never feel like it, it feels like it scratches the itch. Yeah. It just feels like there's always more. And I think that's the point. Um, C.S. Lewis is known for saying, if you feel like there's, if there's, if there's a, a sense in you that nothing in this life can fulfill or gratify, it's because there's something more out there. And that's a very awful loose paraphrase of what he says, but you get the idea. We're not made for this life. We're made for the next life where Christ is the ultimate fulfillment. Right. Yeah. I'm with you on that Christmas and and Thanksgiving. And I found that the older I get, the more that feeling sinks in. Yeah. It's like, okay, 
this world, this life can't satisfy us. Right. And there's, there is something more to that. Well, that's Nehemiah, New Testament reading, Acts chapter 2. And uh, you got 13 verses yesterday. You've got um, 14 through 47, 70, quick math, 33 verses, 33 verses in today. Yeah. And it's minor. It's just a sermon. It's it's just a sermon from Peter. That's all it is. Just the first one that the church was birth, birth with. <laughs> that's it. That's it. So thanks, ESV, for uh, giving us such a clean break on this passage. We really appreciate it. <laughs> I, I don't know how you would break it up otherwise, though. Peter stands up. And he begins to, to preach and he starts with Joel and it's this prophecy from Joel chapter two, verses 28 through 32. And it's an already, but not yet kind of fulfillment situation here. There's an already in that he says in the last days, it shall be that God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The, the ascension of Jesus marked the beginning of the last days. Mm. So we, as the church are currently in the last days, John says in first John that it is the last hour even. And so in that concept, it, it's begun. And yet there's, there's more to it that that this is a lot of this is going to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom, and not here uh, at, at Pentecost. But Peter is is putting everybody on watch and on notice that hey, the last days are here; they're beginning. You guys need to realize that and understand that there's been a shift, and it's been a seismic shift in what's going on here. And then he goes on and he, he summarizes what happened to Jesus. And he says in verse 23, uh, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Uh, this was not an accident. This was not plan B. This was not something that happened to Jesus, but Jesus was an active participant in God, the Father's sovereign unfolding of the plan to put him on the cross for our sins. And I've always just been encouraged by that, that, that this, was, this was not God responding to humanity or God being victimized by humanity, but God orchestrating all of these events to bring about our salvation, which is so encouraging. And I also find it super encouraging here, just from an apologetic standpoint, notice what, what Peter says. He says, a man attested to you. In other words, the, the people listening there, you saw the things that he did, his mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Here's a title again as I'm okay. title. Ready? Here we go. This is the witness to the witnesses. Oh, okay. Right? Okay, I, I get that. Because Peter is is calling on them to go, as, as Paul would eventually say, these things weren't done in a corner. Right. He's saying, you guys saw all this. You witnessed all this. You know all this stuff happened. And here's what you need to understand about it. And so he continues on. He talks about the resurrection. He quotes from Psalm 16. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption because of the resurrection there. Death was not able to hold Christ. And he talks about David. And he's, he's making this kind of apologetic argument with the Jewish people there saying it, yeah. David had to be speaking about somebody else because he did. He's dead. He's yeah. unalived. He's not here. Um, and it, indeed, he was speaking to that. And he quotes from Psalm uh, uh, B, uh, <laughs> Psalm 110, 110. Psalm, yep. where he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Again, David talking about somebody else, somebody greater even than he himself. And he's speaking to this Jewish audience. He's speaking to this mixed group there even. And they're convicted over this sermon. They want to know what must we do to be saved. And cut to the heart. Peter responds, he says, repent and be baptized. So, Oof. Pastor Rod, why are we then not, here's a, a phrase for everybody, baptismal regenerationist. In other words, why do we not believe that somebody has to be baptized in order to be saved? Because they're asking Peter, what do I need to be do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Yeah, there's a couple ways to go about this. And the first thing that we should ask ourselves is, okay, what is the author intending by what he says? Does Peter, or in this case, Luke, who's doing the editing and putting all this work together, does he intend for us to understand baptism as an essential aspect 
of our salvation. In other words, we can't be saved apart from being dunked in water. And we could say no for at least two reasons. And I'll be simple here. The first reason is that throughout the, the, the work of Acts, throughout the book of Acts, every time we talk about salvation, and even from the Apostle Peter, only this time does he ever marry the concept of repentance and baptism to salvation. Every other time he talks about it, it's in the context of faith. By faith you're saved. So you can, you can jot down a few references that you can look at later. Acts 5.31 and Acts 10.43. Those are two that you should look at, Acts 5.31 and 10.43. Those are places where you get some clarity that what Peter intends to communicate is not that repentance and baptism saves you, but that repentance and faith. And in fact, repentance and faith are kind of two sides of the same coin. That's the first reason. The second reason is going to be a bit more closely aligned with the grammar of the passage. So if you're looking at your Bible, look at verse 38 again. Peter said to them, repent. Now in your minds, imagine a parenthesis between repent and the, the part where it says the forgiveness of sin. So after Jesus Christ. So grammatically speaking, it's possible that what we're seeing here is repent, parenthesis, and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, close parenthesis, for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, the phrase would be repent for the forgiveness of your sins with the parenthetical being repent and be baptized every single one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Grammatically speaking, that works. You'll have to trust me on that. If you want to talk more about that when we see each other on Sunday, let's do that. But trust, that's an option, grammatically speaking. So you have two reasons. One, grammar from the passage and two, other places that the book of Acts talks about salvation by repentance and faith and not baptism. Helpful, super helpful. A couple other things that, that I've thought about in the past too is when the Apostle Paul says, I'm thankful that I baptize none of you, right? Right. If baptism is essential for salvation, why would Paul say, man, I'm, I'm grateful that I never baptized any of you? Yeah. When we know that Paul's mission was to see people come to Christ. Right. Instead, he said, what? I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Mm-hmm. And that was sufficient to save in that message. And then the second thing is we in our culture and here in our society, somebody can be saved and then be baptized sometimes 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, sometimes 40, 50 years later down the road. That's true. In this culture, baptism was such a symbolic act of identifying themselves as a follower of Jesus that there wasn't really such thing as an unbaptized Christian at this time or or a Christian Mm. who was wrestling with, should I really be baptized? Right. So in that sense, it was connected to the actual act of baptism professing Christ and being saved more closely than it is today because of the the cultural time there. But yeah, suffice it to say the evidence stacks up in in favor of the position that this is not Peter saying you have to be baptized to be saved, that baptism saves you. Right. At the end, we see the the result of this sermon. People are saved and saved in droves uh, as thousands come to faith in Christ and they come together and the church begins to, to be the church and they, they're gathering together, they're attending temple together. Because at this point, remember, these are Jews who have found Jesus. These are not, this is not a separate sect that's breaking off and doing their own thing. So they're going to temple together, realizing that, hey, we've, we've found the Messiah. They're, they're teaching in Solomon's portico. They're breaking bread in their homes. They've received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. I love that, right? Having favor with all people. That, what a, a cool thing that is, that, that the people were loving what was going on with this group of believers. And it said, and the Lord added their number day by day, those who were being saved. Crazy. Yeah, I, I would love for our church to have that kind of reputation. For sure. Where we have that kind of love for one another and that care for even the the non-Christian person who lives beside us. I think that's part of where their favor mm-hmm. came from. They were the kind of people that were known for their love. And that's what Jesus says that would be characteristic among those who are part of his community. Absolutely.
So think about that this week, church, as we've got a, a few more days before we get back together on Sunday. We've got an opportunity to be the salt of the earth and to have that positive impact in our neighborhoods uh, all around us. And so we are, are grateful again that you've tuned in and given some time to us, uh, almost 20 minutes on this one. As, uh, as we've been going through these passages, we're thankful for your attention span and joining with us. And we'll catch you again tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. See y'all. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. We hope and pray this has been a blessing to you and your time in the Word. If it has, if you would subscribe to this podcast, leave a like, leave a comment, and share it with some friends and family, that would be awesome. If you need more information about Compass Bible Church here in North Texas, you can go to compassntx.org. Again, that's compassntx.org. And we'll be back with you tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Mm -hmm.